continues in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There are a whole bunch of different verses up there. I'm going to uh, counsel you to go home and read the whole chapter so that, you know, you're not thinking I'm taking any of this out of context. All right. But I'll read you um, selections of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hear the word of God. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we don't ask for answers to all of the mysteries, but... We do ask this morning for a helpful insight. Lord, you have condescended to reveal yourself to us through the humble words of Scripture. We pray that as we dig into those words this morning, that your spirit would speak to us. For outside of you, we have no hope. And you have the words of life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is Easter, so I hope you don't mind if I talk about the resurrection this morning and if I talk about eternal life. I want to talk about resurrection and eternal life because some people have goofy ideas about these things. Sometimes I go to funerals, Christian funerals, and people stand up and say things like, Uncle Bob was a wonderful man, a loving father, a doting husband, a great fisherman, and the teller of the corniest jokes known to humankind. 
I'll never forget the time that Uncle Bob took all of us kids down to the shore on the back roads and we ran out of gas in the Pine Barrens. And then ensues a shaggy dog story involving stranded kids peeing in the woods and a family of curious raccoons and a missing bathing suit bottom and a van full of nuns. Loss and humor and redemption all on the side of the American highway. And when the story reaches its merciful end, the speaker says to the funeral crowd, Dear Uncle Bob, he was one of a kind. And he will live on in our memories forever. As though that's supposed to be a consolation. Uncle Bob will live on in our memories forever? That's not eternal life. Listen, people's memories are very short. They will forget you. And even if someone does remember you because you died still owing them ten bucks, who's going to remember you after the people who knew you died? When the last person alive who remembers you, dies, what happens to you? Do you go poof and disappear into nothingness? What kind of crazy eternal life is that? The old you'll live in our memory forever plan for eternal life is terrible. Don't fall for that. Don't believe it. It's not Christian. It's some daffy new aged idea. Here's what Christians believe. People are a union of soul and body. And when you die, your body and soul separate. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about what that's like. But what the Bible does say loud and clear is that one day Jesus will return and our dead bodies will stop being dead. Our bodies will be reunited with their souls and our bodies will be transformed into something new. Our mortal bodies will be changed into immortal bodies. And then here's the really good part, the part that I like. In those immortal bodies, we who are in Christ, having been united with Him in faith, will live forever in a city called New Jerusalem, a city where there will be no tears or death or sadness. And as for people remembering you, well, in your new resurrected body, you can just go to their house. And you ring the doorbell and you say, remember me? (laughs) And guess what? They will. That's what Christians are talking about when they talk about eternal life. That's what Christians mean by the resurrection. And that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus died on Friday, but then on Sunday morning he got up. Not with the same old perishable mortal body that he had received through the Virgin Mary. His resurrected body was somehow different. It was the same but different. We don't have a lot of details about this. He was the same enough that he ate food and people recognized him and talked to him and they touched him. But somehow he was different too. And so with that resurrected body, Jesus shows up where people weren't expecting him. And he says... Remember me? First to see him were the women in the garden on Easter morning. And then he went to see a large crowd of disciples in an upper room. And then Jesus walked with a pair of disciples on the road to Emmaus. All together, 
More than 500 people saw Jesus in His resurrected body. His resurrected body was physical. One you could see and touch. Jesus was not a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an apparition or an illusion or a dream or a metaphor or a vision. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Remember Thomas touching the scars in his hand and the wound in his side? Remember Jesus cooking fish over a charcoal fire on the lake shore? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record stories about the resurrected Jesus. And what is clear from all of them is that the resurrected Jesus was physical. He was flesh and blood. Whatever you think about Jesus, make sure you don't make the mistake of thinking that the resurrected Jesus was only a spirit or something as goofy as a memory. Dear Jesus... He was one of a kind. And He will live on always in our memory. Not. Jesus lives in glory. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day, Jesus will return in the flesh to judge the living and the dead. Whether or not you or I or anyone else remembers Him. Now the normal thing to do at Easter is to preach on one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection. But this Easter we're going to do something a little different. This morning we're going to take a look at Paul's account of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Most scholars agree that this is actually the earliest account, earliest written account, Of the resurrection. It was written before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though it comes after them in the sequence of books in the New Testament. Paul doesn't give the kind of narrative, newspapery details that we find in the Gospels. And that's because Paul's interest in the resurrection is theological rather than historical. 1 Corinthians is an edgy letter that Paul wrote to a church having some serious problems. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth preaching the gospel and getting this church started. And once it was up and running, Paul moved on to Ephesus to start another church there. And while he was in Ephesus, he receives reports that things have gone haywire back in Corinth. And so he writes to the church, To set some things straight, he writes about spiritual gifts, he writes about sexual ethics, he writes about marriage and singleness and divorce, he writes about eating food that's been offered to idols, he writes about the Lord's Supper, and then finally he writes about the resurrection. Reading between the lines, we know that some people in Corinth were saying that there would not be a resurrection of the dead. That, in spite of the fact that resurrection from the dead was and is and always has been a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. Paul writes, I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Christianity is a Resurrection religion. 
But some in the Corinthian church had lost sight of this basic truth. And so Paul writes to them to set them straight. This Easter Sunday, this day when we remember the resurrection of Jesus, who scripture tells us was the firstborn from the dead, it is fitting for us to work our way through Paul's theological discussion of the resurrection. This morning I want to make three points, and they are this, these. Number one, the death of Jesus was an atonement, a payment for our sin. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point on the atonement. And number three, the resurrection is about the body, not the mind or soul or spirit. Three simple points, and then we can go to the Easter egg hunt. The death of Jesus was an atonement, a payment for sin. Paul writes, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Under the old law, the priest made blood sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. The sacrifice of animals, their blood poured out on the altar, prefigured and symbolized the future atonement that God would offer himself on the cross. Once the sacrifice was made, it was as if the sin had never been committed. Once the sacrifice was made, the sinner's record was wiped clean. After the atoning sacrifice, the sinner could stand before God, justified, righteous. He could stand in the temple and offer his prayers. And know that God's face was not turned away from him. Alright, I have three little sub-points under this major point. Okay, this is not a six-point sermon. It's really a three-point sermon with three sub-points. Bear with me. The three sub-points are this. The atonement reconciles us to God. The atonement redeems us from slavery to sin. And there's nothing that we add to the atonement. Alright, here we go very quickly. First, because of the atonement, we are reconciled to God. Reconciled is the opposite of alienated or estranged. Reconciliation happens when old barriers fall down and people are reunited. Sin is the barrier between us and God. And because of the blood of Christ atoning for our sins, we are no longer estranged or alienated from God. We are reconciled. Paul writes... In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present present you holy and blameless And above reproach before Almighty God. We were alienated. Because our very nature is sinful and hostile toward God and the law. We don't want to hear about this stuff. That's our nature. But because of the atonement which washes away our sins, we're reconciled to God. And Jesus presents us to his Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now I know that sounds extraordinary. 
that a bunch of sinners like you all might stand before God holy and blameless and above reproach. But when we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there is an exchange that happens. Christ takes our sins on himself on the cross, and in return, Christ gives us his perfect righteousness. That means that when we stand before God on judgment day, we will be clothed in perfect righteousness, not our own righteousness, because that, you'll recall, the Bible tells us is nothing more than filthy rags, but in the righteousness of Christ. It sounds too good to believe, but it's the gospel. So the atonement reconciles us to God. No longer does sin stand between us and an intimate relationship with God. And secondly, the atonement redeems us from sin. We read in Hebrews 9, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, redemption is just an old-fashioned word. It means that you've been bought out of slavery. The Bible describes our relationship to sin as slavery. And for all of us who have ever tried to kick a habit or to change our behaviors, we know that sin can keep us in chains. Just as God redeemed the Israelites and freed them from slavery in Egypt, God redeems the church and frees it from bondage to sin. So the atonement redeems us from sin. No longer does sin hold us hostage. The blood of Christ has set us free. And third, there is nothing that we add to the atonement. Jesus paid it all. People sometimes talk about atoning for their own sins through their repentance, through their resolutions, through their good deeds, through their suffering. But there is nothing we can add to the completed work of Christ on the cross. Jesus, the very Son of God, laid down His life to pay for my sin. What could I possibly add to the infinite worth of that sacrifice? That grand old hymn, Rock of Ages, nails the theology perfectly. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We have to wean ourselves We have to wean ourselves of our desire to be righteous in our own right. We have to wean ourselves of our arrogance in thinking that we can add even one iota to what Christ did for us. We're not saved by the cross plus what we bring to the table. We're saved by Jesus' sacrifice alone. The Apostle John puts it this way. The blood of Christ cleanses us. From all sin. Not the blood of Christ plus our good deeds. Not the blood of Christ plus our tears. Not the blood of Christ plus our resolutions. The blood of Christ alone cleanses us from all our sins. 
Okay, those are my three sub-points. Back to major point number two. The resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point on the atonement. If you think about it for a minute, you realize that Jesus could have died for us as an atonement of our sins and not been resurrected. He could have stayed dead. That was a possibility. After all, the animals that were sacrificed in the temple didn't come back to life afterward. They managed to cover the sins and then they remained dead. The resurrection, as it turns out, is an extra. extra. It's an add-on. It's a bonus. It's an exclamation point stuck at the end of the self-sacrifice of Christ. So what is the resurrection? Paul writes, For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. You know from Genesis chapter 3 that death comes into the world because of sin. And so when sin is wiped away by the blood of Christ, so too is the curse of sin, which is death. Here's something strange to think about. The Roman soldiers could not have killed Jesus if he had not first taken our sins on him. As a sinless man, he was impervious to death. But because he drank the bitter cup of our sins, his body was able to die, which it did. Having conquered sin by his self-sacrifice, Jesus also then conquers death, which is a part of the curse of sin. And so there was no choice but for his body to spring back up, renewed, glorified, restored, to live again eternally. When we are in Christ, our sin, when we are in Christ, our sins are washed away. We remain, however, this side of glory in bodies that live under the curse that we've inherited from Adam. But that curse is going to be taken care of someday soon when Christ returns in power. When Christ returns, death will be no more. Those who have died, they're going to be resurrected. And those who have not yet died, they will be given deathless bodies. Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death goes away. I can't wait. Resurrection will be wonderful. It's going to be a surprising thing. I mean, what will go through your mind when you're roused from the dead? I don't know. But as wonderful as resurrection will be, what I'm really hoping for is that I'm still alive when Jesus comes. Because I want to see the change in real time. The change from my current body to my glorified body. 
Paul writes, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We'll not all die, in other words. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body put on immortality. I can't wait to see that. That's the moment when our salvation is completed. Yes, we've been captured by Christ. Yes, we've been regenerated and born again. But we still live in bodies that are under the curse of original sin. By wiping away that sin, Christ's atonement will also wipe away the effects of sin. Not right now, but in the fullness of time. And so we remain in hope for the completion of our salvation which will come that day when we see Jesus face to face. Paul writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Point number three. The resurrection is all about the body, not about the spirit. Resurrection is about physical matter, not about The mind or the soul or the spirit. Yes, God regenerates, rejuvenates, restores and restores our mind and spirit. David prays to God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Paul writes to the Romans, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Paul describes spiritual regeneration in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses, but God even... When you were dead, made us alive in Christ. Yes, God regenerates, rejuvenates, restores, and renews our minds and spirits. But that's not what we mean when we're talking about resurrection. When the Bible talks about resurrection, it's talking about the body. The flesh and blood body. Now, let's admit it up front. We don't really understand what the resurrected body is going to be like. Paul doesn't know... You can hear him groping for some kind of explanation. He says, not all flesh is the same. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind and the glory of the earthly body is another. Paul doesn't know what the resurrected body will be like. But here's what Paul does know. Paul knows that Jesus, who was dead, is no longer dead. And he knows that because he saw him with his own eyes. He can't explain what he saw, but he knows that he saw it. And Jesus revealed to Paul and to the other apostles that those who are united to Christ in faith will also undergo the same kind of change that Jesus underwent when he came out of the tomb. The apostle John talks about it this way. Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Like Jesus. We're going to be like Jesus, whatever it was about the body of Jesus that was different on that first Easter morning, that's what we will be like. Are you ready for that? We'll still be who we are. 
We're going to recognize each other, but somehow the physics of our body will have changed. The body will no longer decay. The body will no longer die. That's what happens in the resurrection if we die before Jesus returns. That's what will happen to us in the twinkling of an eye if we're still alive when Jesus comes back. Either way, we're getting a new and improved body. Thanks be to God. The prophet Isaiah foresaw what Jesus would accomplish on Mount Calvary. Looking forward to God's redemption of his people, Isaiah sang these words, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud of death that enfolds all people, the sheet of death that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. And Paul picks up that same song in his meditation in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection. He sings, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of death is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of us were born into sin. It's part of our nature. We arrived that way. We can't escape it. It's just who we are. And because of the irrevocable law of God, our sin puts us under a curse. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. Violate God's law. And you face the curse of death. That's an unchangeable rule of God's universe. But no one is able to keep God's law. And so all people find themselves under the same curse. But here's the good news. God in his mercy reveals a way to life and to eternal life separate from, different from, apart from keeping God's law. Paul writes in Romans 3, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. By faith in Christ we receive the righteousness of God as a gift. The blood of Christ washes away our sins. And our bodies, our Mortal bodies are then set for the day of resurrection. For that moment when in the twinkling of an eye we will be transformed into something different. Please don't think that you can get right with God, that you can be justified just by being good. You can't. It's an empirical fact. You'll make resolutions and you will fail. You'll be good for a while and you will backslide. There's no way that you can be righteous in the sight of God by your own willpower and effort. It won't happen. And the Bible tells you it won't happen. 
which is what makes the news of the gospel all the more sweet. Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. I can't keep the works of the law. I consistently always fall short, but I can have faith. And so there's hope for someone like me. If you've been counting on being good to get you to heaven, please stop that right now. Give it up. It's hopeless. And instead, cling to the cross of Christ, where the blood of Christ can wash away all of your sins and present you spotless before Almighty God. Stop having faith in yourself and in your attempts at goodness and start having faith in the perfect goodness of Jesus which is offered to you as a free gift to be received by faith alone. If you've never before made a decision to abandon hope in yourself and to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, Easter Sunday is a pretty good time to do that. How it all works is a mystery. Even the Apostle Paul says that. But you know enough of the gospel to know that something infinitely precious is being offered to you for the taking. Take it. Let your sins be washed away. Walk in freedom from all guilt and shame and fruitless efforts at self-salvation. Let Jesus be your Savior today. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you and we worship you this day. And we thank you for the completed work on the cross. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us and for being obedient to the Father, for being willing to give up the glories of heaven to hang out with us for a while and to lay down your life, to take our filth and our sin upon you and to pay that price for it, that cosmic price. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you send us your Holy Spirit so that a faith would grow up in us to cling to you, to cling to the cross, to cling to the work that you've accomplished and to stop clinging to ourselves. Do that for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.